The text for the sermon this morning is Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. Luke 7, 18 through 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out and see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children." Let's pray. Uh, Father, we need your help now as we look at your word. God, I pray that it would not only not just be interesting to us, but that it would be practical to our lives. Lord, I pray that you build our faith through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message today, I'm kind of proud of, The Powder Doubter's Route to Jesus. (laughs) What we see in this passage is a generation of powders who doubt, but we see an example of a believer who's doubting, who 
goes the right direction with his doubt. And the question I have for you uh, at the very outset is this. It's a simple question, but it's one I want you to think about, not just in a superficial way. Uh, How is your life going? Is your life going the way you expected it to go? How is your life going? Do you feel like God has missed the boat in certain areas that He, in a sense, fell asleep on you when circumstances turned out differently than you expected? Maybe you've experienced suffering upon suffering upon suffering and it raises doubts in your heart about the goodness of God. Second question I want to ask you is this. How have you been offended by God's sovereignty in how your life is playing out? God is sovereign over all the details of your life. And I want you to consider how you've been offended by God's sovereignty in the way your life is being played out. A third question is this. Is following Christ, believing what the Bible says about Him, too costly for you? Think about the circumstances of your life not working out the way you had hoped. Are you ready to just throw in the towel and say, this isn't how I planned it. I'm going a different route. I can't follow him too much. It's too costly. I know what Jesus says, and I can't make the payment. I'm not willing to stay on board with the ruler, with the Christ, when life turns out this way. That might be you. Maybe doubts have risen to such a level in your mind that you're close to walking away from Christ. Maybe you already have in your heart. I have some good news for you if you're convicted and you admit that you have doubts in regards to following Christ. Uh, It might surprise you that the most common way Jesus uh, referred to His disciples is saying things like this, Oh, you of little faith. That's what He keeps saying to them. Oh, you of little faith. Remember at the beginning of chapter 7, a Roman centurion, a Roman captain's faith was put on display. Jesus said, I've never seen such a great faith in all of Israel like this man's faith. And then we saw Jesus raise the widow's son. And the people declared, surely he's a great prophet, but miss who he really is. And in our passage today, these works are reported to John 
And then we see the greatest prophet that's ever been begin to doubt. Uh, This surprised me, but uh, John MacArthur points out the fact that in all the Gospels, if you look at all the Gospels, whenever the Gospels speak of doubt, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it always deals with a doubting person who is a believer. When we're talking about doubt, when the New Testament talks about doubt, it's referring to believers. It's referring to people like the apostles. It's referring to people like John the Baptist, like Peter. Doubting Thomas, MacArthur points out, he gets a bad rap. What, you know, who's Thomas? Well, he's the doubter. Well, who scattered when Jesus was being crucified? They all scattered. Everybody who are true believers even struggle with doubt. We're going to consider today how doubt works, why we struggle with doubt, and what we do with it. And the main thing that I want you to leave with is this, to, de- de- to detect misguided expectations that nurture doubt and then take them to Jesus. I think we'll see in this text that misguided expectations is the fertile soil where doubt begins to grow. And then as we realize how we're doing this in our own lives, <laughs> as we look at John the Baptist and even his doubt, we're going to learn what to do with it and uh, how uh, to walk by faith. And then uh, at the end, we'll look at the four common lies uh, we believe that kindled, kindled out in us. Everything that John the Baptist struggled with, I believe you and I struggle with if we're going to be honest. So this text is really practical. I take all of chapter 7 is kind of holding together. Centurion's amazing great faith on display from one you wouldn't expect that would have it to Israel's doubt, even the greatest prophet in Israel, his doubt. And yet we see the faith of John in this text as well. So let's look at verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, the disciples of John needed to report these things. These things he's talking about. The widow's uh, son was just raised from the dead. These things, John's disciples reported to him. And if you remember, John needs, he didn't get to see these things with his own eyes because he got put in prison. In fact, in Mark 6, verse 17, uh, we read about this. Uh, We read that it, it was Herod who had first sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias his brother Philip's wife, because he married her. For John had been saying to Herod, 
we see something of John's character here. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous, holy man. He kept him safe, and when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet heard him gladly. So John's in prison because the king of the land, uh, the one who's king over the region of Galilee and Perea, uh, Herod Antipas, John has gone up to him and told him, what you've done is wicked. You've taken your brother Philip's wife. Well, that makes Herodias upset. So he gets put in prison. And uh, that's why the disciples are reporting to him in prison. This prison is located east of the Dead Sea on a hill overlooking it. It's like a summer resort, a summer place that Herod hangs out. It's called the Palace uh, of Macarus. And it's in the basement, in the dungeon of this palace is where John is being held. And if you know this story, you know what ends up happening to John. And that's just good to have that in our minds as we go forward. Uh, he's in prison for over uh, probably a year. For months for sure, probably over a year in a dark dungeon. And... Herod throws a party where Herodias' daughter, Salome, uh, performs this sensual dance for all of Herod's friends. And uh, she so pleased them with this seductive dance that uh, Herod, in a braggadocious way, says, ask anything and I'll give it to you. And she goes to her mom and says, what should I ask for? And without missing a beat, she says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And like that, John the Baptist was beheaded and brought on a platter. But at this point, John's still alive. He's in prison. And he sends his disciples, um, two of his disciples, to ask an odd question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Why in the world is John the Baptist asking this question? I mean, the ministry he's already fulfilled is unbelievable. In Matthew 3.13 we read, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he baptizes him, and God speaks out of heaven and says, This is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. In John 1.29, we read, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. I did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent him 
me to him to baptize with water, said to me, on him who you see this spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. And the next day, John, when he was standing by two of his disciples, he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Already in Luke 3.16, John answered and said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier, mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then in John 3.29, he says, The one who has the bride has the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John's ministry is fulfilled. He must increase, I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now, John was sent by God, the greatest of all prophets we're going to see in a moment, to do two things, to be the forerunner of the Messiah, to prepare the way for Christ and to say, here he is, the time has come. He's already done that. And the second thing is to preach repentance, to prepare, to make a people prepared for their Lord. And he's already done that. But right now he's in prison. And his circumstances are difficult. And he sends two disciples to say, are you the one who is to come? Or should we wait for another? Think of the miracles he's already seen. Think of the confirmation that he got his ministry right. And yet here he is, struggling. Why is he puzzled? He may be puzzled at why Jesus isn't acting faster. You're not doing what I expected you to do in my timetable. If you're the one, then why aren't you doing what I expect? You know, this made me scratch my head because it says, after he raised the widow's son, These things were reported to John, and then John says, is this really the one? I would think John would hear that and say, oh, he must be the one. But John seems to have understood the Messiah's ministry as showing up. Those who repent are saved by him, and those who don't repent are immediately judged. But the reports coming back to John, in fact, John was a fire and brimstone preacher. He said the axe is already laid at root to the tree. Anyone who does not repent is going to be destroyed by the one who comes. And here, all these reports are that Jesus is showing mercy to sinners. He's healing everybody. This isn't how he expected the Messiah to work. He was right The Messiah was coming to judge, but he missed the fact that there's two comings of Christ. If you just read the Old Testament, it's hard to discern that this is how it's going to work out. The Jews had in their mind exactly how this was supposed to play out, and Jesus is not 
fitting the bill to what they expected. And it even makes sense. When you go read these Old Testament prophecies about John's ministry and what he's supposed to point to, it seems at first glance that John points to Christ and then Christ judges uh, everyone in the moment. So here John is asking the question. He has honest doubt But notice where he goes. Where does he send his disciples? He doesn't send them to the Pharisees. He doesn't send them to see what everyone else is saying. He sends them to Christ, which is important. Where else are you going to go? You know, I was just talking to somebody this week who's a believer but struggling to believe that all the Old Testament could be true. They've been reading the Old Testament. It's really hard to read some of the things that took place. Are we sure that these things are true? Now, what am, what am I to do in that moment? I could get, talk about all the manuscripts and all this stuff, but the number one thing I need to do, who's going to confirm God's Word above God? Nobody. You have to go to God's Word. What does God's Word account for itself? And we went through those passages and we looked at what God's Word says about God's Word. And so John rightly, in his doubt, sends his disciples to Christ. And when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And then it says, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. He answered them and said, go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. He quotes Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 26. Jesus says, look, I'm doing all the things Isaiah speaks of. And I want to point out something here. Jesus handles honest doubt with kindness and patience. When the Pharisees come to him without doubt, but with evil hearts that have already rejected him, they say, do miracles for us, and he refuses. But John's disciples come with a question and he mercifully puts on display his works right in front of them. Then he points to the Scripture and says, look, I'm doing what God promised would happen through the Messiah. I think what John thought is that God is going to first judge the earth, then do all these things. This is confusing to him. But when Christ came, he said the kingdom of God is at hand, But he also says the kingdom of God is coming. So as Jesus is here, he's doing things that are going to be true in the kingdom that is to come, but they're happening right now. Where Jesus is, the curse is being reversed. All the destruction that came through Adam's sin is being undone by Christ, yet Christ is pointing towards a second coming when he comes 
And the second time He comes, He's not coming to bring mercy, but He's coming to judge. He's coming to get His own and to judge. And so He says, report back to John these things. And then He says in verse 26, blessed is the one who is not offended by Me. Happy is the one that hears about Jesus' works the style of ministry, the way he does it, and isn't offended. Happy is the one who sees what Jesus is doing and is not offended by him. Most of the people, most Israelites, expected a different type of Messiah. Jesus is saying to John and to others that blessing comes to the one who is not offended by the surprising uniqueness of the ministry of Christ. Uh, One way that you see this on display, one illustration we see this in the Gospels was a blind man who was healed. And the Pharisees just couldn't get over this, that this man from birth, everyone knew him, he was healed, and they're trying to figure this out, but they already know they're not going to believe in Jesus. And they come to him, uh, they, they come to the man's parents and say, what happened? And they said, he's old enough, talk to him. He's of age, ask him. This is John 9, 23. So for the second time, they called the man who was blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. They say, you better stop saying Jesus did this. Give glory to God. This man's a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? You can, you can imagine how this scenario is going. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. You're his, we're of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where, from where he comes. The man answered, whoa, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if God, anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone's eyes opened the eyes of a blind man. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's a pretty smart guy. And they answered him, You were born in in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. You see, they already had a preconceived idea about a blind person. They thought a person who is blind is judged by God. They're a worse sinner. They can't listen to a man who's teaching them truth about God because they already have a preconceived idea that Jesus is bad and we are good. We follow Moses. And so we see them struggling with Christ and His ministry. 
Blessed is the one who knows what time it is. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. Blessed is the one who knows what's happening at this point in time in history. Look at verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did he go out into the or what did you go out into the wilderness to see? You see John's ministry was so vast there hadn't been a prophet in Israel in 400 years and most of the people in Israel believed he was a prophet. He was that powerful and strong in his ministry of his correction even of kings and rulers. They knew this man was sent from God. And Jesus says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury and are in king's courts. What then did you go out and see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. So this prophet is prophesied of. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And he quotes Malachi 3, 1 and 2. And so what is Jesus doing here? He's asking three questions. What do you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Now some people think Jesus is saying, did you just go out for no reason and watch the weeds along the river? That might be what Jesus has in mind. We can't know for sure. Other people think, Did you go out and see a man who has no backbone that's just flimsy? He could be saying, that's not John the Baptist. You went out to see a strong, powerful preacher. He probably means one of those two things. And then he says, did you go out to see a man dressed in nice, soft, fine clothing? No, you didn't didn't go to see some coddled man who's been coddled in king's clothing. You went out to see a man of conviction who had rough clothing. He ate locusts. He lived out in the wilderness. And then Jesus says, you went out to see a prophet. Now, when Jesus says that, he's confirming his Messiahship because John pointed to him as the Messiah. But Jesus says, there's never been a man born of woman greater than John. Moses Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Isaiah, none of their ministry matched that of John's. Because John was the one, rather than speaking of the promise, John's ministry was this. It's here. It's fulfilled. There he is. And so then Jesus says this amazing thing. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You take all the prophets, stack them up, John's at the top. Yet you take the smallest in the kingdom of God, he's higher than John. Jesus is saying this, those who are sticking with the Old Testament prophets, and not with the one who's the fulfillment of it all, the least of of those who are trusting in Jesus are greater than those who are hanging on to Moses, who are even hanging on to John. 
the one who believes me, that I bring in the kingdom, even the least of those have a higher calling. In fact, their eyes are open to stuff the prophets uh, couldn't understand and, and see. In Matthew uh, 13, 16, we're told, Jesus says to his disciples, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And you hear and hear what you hear and did not hear it. He's saying, You have no idea how blessed you are to be living at this time, seeing the kingdom of God fulfilled. Yet Jesus is saying, Most of you are offended with me. I'm here doing it, and you're upset with the way I'm doing it. In 1 Peter 1.10, we're told uh, that we've been preached the good news, things into which angels long to look. We devalue knowing Christ, having the Holy Spirit, having the Scriptures, so much that we can even consider walking away from Jesus. Doubting whether God is good because things aren't working out the way we like. So then Jesus, so then we get this parenthetical uh, point that Luke points out in verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. So there's this big group of people that hear what Jesus is saying and says, yes, you're speaking the truth. You are who you say you are. When John preached repentance, we knew we were sinners and we repented. But then he says, verse 30, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized with him. You see, the Pharisees could not accept the change in God's ministry different from how they expected it. The way they were doing ministry brought all glory to themselves in John saying, repent, and they would not have it. So then Jesus tells this little parable, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, we play the flute for you, you did not dance. We sing a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist is, has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has his demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. Now this is a weird little parable. When you first read it, it's like, what is he talking about here. But Jesus says, let me help you understand what this generation's like. This generation doesn't know how to play the simple game. Doesn't know the rules. Doesn't know what time it is. And they don't like the rules. They don't like what time it is. So they pout. He's like, here's what it's like. In a courtyard, there, there's two big events that happen in Jewish culture. And we know that children like to imitate adults. 
And so it seems like Jesus is imagining a group of children playing a game. They're playing a wedding. I see this all the time in my house, over and over and over again. My girls have been brides so many times, you can't believe it. But they start playing a flute. Now, a Jewish wedding is like a week-long celebration and festival. It's a happy time of celebration. He's like, there's children. Jesus is saying, it's like children playing the flute and everyone's supposed to play along because this is supposed to be the wedding and the kids are sitting, I don't like this game. I'm not going to dance when they play the happy song. And then children are playing like what you would play at a funeral. They're playing a sad song. Well, I don't like this game. I'm not going to pout. See, both ends of the spectrum, he's saying this generation is like a bunch of pouty little children who no matter what, they don't like it. John the Baptist, according to God's call on his life, he never drank alcohol. He... He never lived in luxury. He separated himself, lived out in the wilderness. And Jesus said, you looked at him and you said, look at how he's living. He's got a demon. And then Jesus lives right in the flow with society. And he's eaten with tax collectors and sinners. And he even drinks wine with them. And they say, look, he's a glutton and a drunkard. They're like pouty little children that are never happy. No matter what, they aren't accepting the rules of the game. They're not accepting the timing. He says, this is what this generation is like. And then he says, yeah, wisdom is justified by all our children. Jesus is saying, but there is some who watch my ministry listen to what I say, and they worship me. They just accept it like children. They love me. They trust me. And Jesus is saying, I am justified as not being a fool by the fruit of my children that are all here trusting in me. So this chapter is about a generation of people who are struggling with Christ's ministry. So, here's what I want to consider. Here's how I want to make it practical at the end. I want to point out, and I just want to confess, I got uh, John MacArthur helped me see uh, some of these things in his commentary. And if you want to go read that, it's really helpful. Um, But when we look at John's life and his doubt here, there's four common lies that I think we believe that John's struggling with. And one of them is this lie. If I'm faithful, then bad things should not happen to me. Now, think about it for a minute. Put yourself in a dungeon for a year. You faithfully executed your ministry. We're not told that John failed in any part of it. And, and, and where it lands him is in prison. And he's been there for a year. 
And then he hears about what Jesus is doing. And everyone who's in need, it seems like Jesus helps. And yet, no one's come to John yet in prison. Jesus hasn't come to get him out of his circumstance. And so it seems like John's thinking, wait a minute, this isn't how this is supposed to work. God's supposed to judge the wicked. And he's supposed to reward the righteous. And I've done everything I'm supposed to do, yet I'm sitting here suffering. Have you ever dealt with that way of thinking in your mind? This isn't fair. Those people live like that. Their life goes good. I'm living like this, and yet my circumstances aren't unfolding the way I had hoped. The lie is, if I'm faithful to God, then bad things should not happen to me. Now here's the comfort. This is not a problem that we can't deal with as Christians. Because the Bible never said that we weren't going to suffer on this earth. It said the exact opposite. Let me give you a few examples. Luke 23, 39. Uh, actually, 2 Timothy three twelve. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you want to live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. And how from childhood, the word is to make you wise unto salvation. And then we're told in John 16, 31, Jesus answered them, Do you believe now? Behold, the hour is coming and his deed come when you will be scattered, each of you to his own home. You'll leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I said these things to you, that you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Here's what Jesus promised you. Life on this earth is going to be hard. Jesus promised that you're not going to be devoid of suffering. He never promised John the Baptist that if you fulfill your ministry on this earth, it's going to go good for you on this earth. In Romans 8.16, it says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider the sufferings of the, this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How do you know you're a child with God if you're suffering now? Christians suffer now and are waiting for glory later. Now, the thief on the cross had an advantage. The, his whole life was sin. And listen to this conversation on the cross. Because here's our head scratcher. Why is the centurion believing with such great faith and John the Baptist is struggling? Well, John the Baptist has been living for God, doing pretty good. The centurion is just a pagan rebel. The thief on the cross, listen to this. One of the criminals 
were hanged, or one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for what are, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. The advantage of the centurion and of the thief on the cross is they know they deserve death. He's not saying, why am I dying on the cross next to Jesus? He knows he's a sinner. So it seems like believers who are struggling to live for God and are doing better than others, we might be tempted to doubt more if we start to think, if I do good things, then bad things won't happen to me. If you have the preconceived expectations of a promise that isn't in the Bible, then when it doesn't happen, your doubt's going to begin to raise. Second, the second lie is this. God will work in ways that we all expect and understand. How foolish. God's ways are not like our ways. They're higher than our ways. We shouldn't be shocked that Jesus' ministry looks different than what they could figure out in the Scriptures. How inflated was their thinking to think, God will do it just how I expect. You know, I hear it all the time, and I can do the same thing in my own life. Oh, now I see what God's doing. I had to go through this, this, and this, so that now this can happen and this can happen. We're always trying to make sense of it. We always think we got it figured out what God is doing next. And when we do that and it doesn't turn out how we expect, guess what rises? Doubt. Let's not be so arrogant to think that God's ways are how we would do it. Like the way we would do it. Thirdly, the lie of, I know I have all the information. Maybe John was thinking, I know the Scriptures inside and out, and Jesus is not doing what He should be doing. None of us know as we ought to know enough. This is why it's silly to get in fights about the end times with people and to get angry as though somebody sees it so clearly that they know exactly how it's going to turn out. You want to know what creates doubt in God's people? People who believe they have all the information and just have figured out how every prophecy is going to come true. And when they don't happen that way, what happens to those people and their disciples? They begin to doubt the Word of God. We have all the information we need for life and godliness. That doesn't mean we have all the information. Jesus says it's not for you to know the time or the uh, plate are the time of the kingdom when the kingdom will be restored to Israel. That's not for us. Fourth, my style of ministry is God's style of ministry. This causes more church splits. Strong opinions on how things need to be done. Which one are you going to be? Are you going to be a John the Baptist who doesn't drink? I don't drink. I don't drink anything. Does that make me better? than Jesus who drank wine? Are you going to argue with me that I need to drink to be like Jesus? Are we going to find divisions here to fight about? 
Which style of ministry do you prefer, John's or Jesus's? What's the point? They both fulfilled what God was calling them to do. God is bigger than your and my little pea brains that think there's only one way our ministry style has to look. And if it's not that way, then it obviously is not from God. See, John struggled with a Savior that was coming and showing all sorts of mercy and grace when he was sure judgment was surely going to come swiftly. And so we can begin to doubt when we think our style is just like God's. So what do we do with it? What do we do with our doubt? Recognize these lies that we tend to believe. But here's the beauty. Go to God. When Every believer struggles against doubt. Paul, at the end of his life, described his faith this way. I fought the fight of faith. I finished the race. Have you ever ran a race? They're hard. Have you ever been in a fight that slugs it out to the end? You're exhausted. You're tired. But true saving faith takes the doubt and comes to Jesus. And some of you are tempted to take your doubt and go other places. Go on the internet. Go to other teachers. Ask yourself, why is doubt rising in my heart? What expectations have I put on God that I never should have? That the Bible didn't tell me to put on Him? Father, I pray that we can be encouraged that (laughs) we all can just be honest and admit that even in our saving faith, we can struggle with doubt. But Lord, I pray we would go to Your Word to find security. We know that when we go to Your Word, we're like a tree that's planted firmly by streams of living water that can survive a storm. God, I pray that You would strengthen us in Christ. Lord, I pray that You would strengthen us and remind us of the great privilege we have to be a part of the kingdom of God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.